0: All right, good afternoon and welcome back to what is our last track of the day, with the exception of the keynote, which is gonna be after this, and by the way, for those of you who have been here before, the keynote will have CE credit for it this year, so you have no excuse not to be there, and I think you'll enjoy it anyway. Uh, For those of you who do not know me or haven't heard me yet, my name is uh, Dr. David Glick. I have been in the practice of pain since 1990, um, I typically have sort of honed my teeth on seeing the difficult, chronic, or, com- or complicated case that no one else can figure out. So we've had fun with those. Um, so what I wanted to do with this session that we've prepared for you today is I wanted to take a little bit of a look at imaging studies. And the reason why is there seems to be this problem that we have when it comes to evaluation of the patient. And I'm about to lose a friend over this because this friend called me up and said, Hey, David, will you review an MRI, my MRI with me? Because I just got this thing and I wonder what's going on. I said, okay, and he's telling me what the MRI findings are. But then he's also telling me what his symptoms are. And the symptoms don't match what the MRI says, but they're treating him based on the MRI. So I said to him, well, don't tell me what the MRI shows. What, is, what did the exam show? And he tells him what the MRI showed. Well, it turns out when you get his records, you find out no one ever did an exam. They're completely relying upon an imaging study. And how often does that happen? So we wanna take a look at imaging studies themselves and really see if we can tease some things apart to maybe change the way that you look at an imaging study, maybe to give you an extra sense of what that information is and then how better to use it. Because if we just rely upon what we think they do, we're really at risk for a potential red herring when it comes to the treatment of the patient because if you're treating something that really isn't pathology do you expect an outcome well i'm not so sure so let's see what we can do i have nothing official to disclose our course objectives this morning are we want to be able to describe the clinical utility and limitation of some of our imaging studies we're going to play a lot of you know spend a lot of time on mris but we also want to talk about how relying upon these imaging studies can actually be potentially dangerous when it comes to influencing the outcome of our care and then lastly okay now that we sort of threw up the red flags these are some strategies we can do to improve the way that we use these studies in practice have any of you guys heard of this choosing wisely program I like to bring this up because this really came out a number of years ago it's been about five or six what the ABAM foundation did is they realized that a lot of tests and treatments were being done might be unnecessary so they tasked each of these original seven groups, to, to, or nine groups, to come up with um, five things that you think are overutilized. Because their idea was basically, a lot of these things are just wasting healthcare dollars and potentially putting patients at risk. So my favorite one, basically, just to cursor this, was you know like don't do low back like MRIs of the low back within the first six weeks of care unless there are red flags present. So how many people now try and order an mri and the insurance company comes back and says no you can't wait you got to wait six weeks you ever have that problem all the time and you can put in your record the, describe the red flags but they don't even pay attention to what a red flag is scary so the only people paying attention to this is our payers but clinicians aren't the reason why something like this is extremely important because a lot of times we worry this thing's not advancing a lot of times we worry about doing these things on our patients and if we don't do it, we release something out that we can be negligent in some way but these things give you a new guideline to say this is the standard of care because look 72 societies of and and 450 recommendations say wait a second you can take a step back so you're not going to get in trouble for that which is pretty good but what i thought was really important out of this study is when you look at why people do these things when they think they might be medically unnecessary anyway the respondents in the group said 52% said because they were worried about malpractice concerns well that's not a reason to do a diagnostic test really the next two actually are justified because you wanted to be safe as a clinician physician or because you wanted to reassure yourself well that's when the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up of course you want that information but look at the next two categories because the patient's insisting on the test and then they're trying to keep their patients happy well i can give you example after example where the patient insisted upon a test the test result came up with something that you would have never thought in your mind of the treating and now you're stuck in a position where you have to treat it because the test showed that it was there well that's not really helping so one of the things i pride myself on almost every session we talk about is the most important tool is taking the history doing the clinical examination and then coming up with a patient-centered diagnosis to treat the problem because short of that we're just throwing darts at a patient right so what we have unfortunately is because we don't have this this issue with time where we're forced to compensate you know we have to see more patients in a given time slot to make up for lower reimbursements and having to keep the lights on for overhead that has gone up over these years so we start relying upon some of these things like ancillary testing or mris Well, the problem is no one ever validated the efficacy of the MRI to identify meaningful pathology. Well, that's actually something that's a minor oversight that they failed to tell you about. But, you know, if you save one unnecessary back surgery or you save a couple of unnecessary imaging studies, that would go a long way for helping to pay for a longer clinical examination. So there is a model for making this work. I just wish somebody would start attacking it. So we're gonna jump right into MRIs, if this thing will stop jumping around. So how many of you order MRIs on your patients for pain? Almost everybody. How many of you read or look at the studies yourself? Wow, that is the best number of response I've seen yet, so I praise you for that. Because the lion's share of people that we see don't read or review the imaging study themselves, they review the interpretation. Well, I will tell you that maybe it's just my patient population over the last couple of years especially but at least 50 percent of the mris that i see are overread, underread, or outright misread i did a telemedicine consult a, couple, a week or two ago on a patient that i'm looking at the inter- interpretation of the mri and i'm looking at the images and they're like two different patients this patient had a lot of procedures done based on that written interpretation which apparently was the wrong interpretation because they confused it with another patient so much for all those interventional procedures and a surgical procedure that was done. So I'm not sure where that one's gonna go. I think that one's gonna have a malpractice little scenario on it. So what I do when I see a patient, the first thing I do with that patient, um, after we get the history, it's like, did an angel just get their wings or something? We heard all those beeps. <laughs> so um, we always end up going through and walking them through imaging studies themselves, because I want the patient to know what these things say as well. So I'm going to give you the way that I explain MRIs to a patient. So imagine having an orange. And what you do is you want to slice the orange in slices from left to right. And then you pick up one slice at a time and look at it. Well, that's the sagittal view. Then you glue the slices back together and you slice it from top to bottom. and Then you pick each one up and look at it from top to bottom. And that's the axial view. Make sense? So that's how we do this. Now, when you do an mri what you do basically is you stick the patient in this this radio frequency field and you turn on this radio frequency field and these hydrogen molecules that are part of water molecules absorb the energy and become excited then you turn the field off and as these molecules are coming back to a resting state they give off energy and what the imager does is it picks up this energy and gives you these images okay so the the rule 101 when it comes to interpreting an mri is you have to know anatomy and then you also have to be aware of the fact that there are two primary weighted filter settings if you will t1 and t2 well what does that mean well on a t2 weighted image anything that has a higher water content shows up brighter white and on a t1 weighted image anything that has a higher fat content shows up brighter white and water looks darker so i always remember that by saying h2o t2 so if that being the case knowing that you have an axial and a sagittal image on the screen screen left or screen right which is the one that's t2 weighted? guys left and how do you tell but cerebral spinal fluids the giveaway right because it's, this is a, an axial, a, a sagittal image right through the middle of the spine, and you can see the spinal canal with a nice bright white content. So that would have to be T2. Okay? So now we're looking at the anatomy, and you know that this is a slice right in the middle of the spine because you can see spinous processes in a big wide open canal. Everyone agree? And what you have here is this bamboo structure because you've got vertebral disc, vertebral disc, vertebrate disc. Can we all agree to that? It looks pretty normal until you get up to this little thing here about l5s1 and then what do you see a little tiny disc bulge right all right so here's the deal this uh, imagine this patient got injured i don't know about a week or two before the mri was done okay so this patient comes in complaining of back pain in this and you order the mri and the mri comes back and says disc herniation l5s1 seem plausible so how do we know that this disc herniation is clinically relevant to the patient and is there a justification to say wait a second it may not be and remember Dr. Argoff is the one that asks misleading questions (laughs) I try and make them simple so the answer is do you see these little lip-like structures above and below the disc herniation here that looks like little white lips above and below the disc, that's called a modic change. Modic was a neurosurgeon who described the stages of degenerative disc disease. So I can look at this disc herniation knowing that this process had probably taken a year or two to set in, at least, if not longer. Does that correlate with being injured two weeks ago? No, so that would suggest that the patient one would have had a disc herniation going back at least for the last couple of years, that was asymptomatic because they had no pain until two weeks ago. So already the red flag goes up and says, well, wait a second, it could be highly plausible that this is not a related pathology. Now, mind you, it could be that the pathology was there and the patient did something to push themselves over the edge and now it's symptomatic. So that's plausible. But we also look at this information and say, okay, if I'm going to do something as simple as an interventional procedure, which we do all the time, is there any information on this image that I can data mine that gives me an idea of assuming that it might be a problem what I might want to go after there's the other trick question right and the answer to that is yes there is so we know we have a disc herniation at L5S1 right what nerve root exits at L5S1? L5 however this disc herniation when you look at the axial study is well below the l5 nerve root which exited the IVFs above so what you do see here is this disc herniation is is sort of pressing upon the fecal sac it's abutting the s1 nerve root but it does not appear to be compressing it can everybody see that so you have a little disc herniation here it's abutting the s1 nerve root which is right about there but it's not compressing the s1 nerve root and it's sparing l5 because it's below that so Could you do an L5 transferaminal epidural? Well, maybe, but the problem is, well, it's not a problem, but there's some really good research that came out about 20 years ago where they did a lot of injections on patients, but instead of using the steroid, all they used was saline. And guess what? They got the same result as a steroid-based epidural. So what that means is maybe erasing away or rinsing away some of the inflammatory cytokines might play a role in that treating the patient as well so if you're going to do an epidural why not get when i get a you know a, an extra shot at having both sides of that equation just in case so i wouldn't do an l5 transframal epidural because it would be hard to get the medication into the canal but would an l5 s1 interlaminar epidural be a good case to go because that's where the disc pathology is affecting the s1 nerve root yeah true but when you read the interpretation the interpretation just says disc herniation l5 s1 with your face with the fecal sac And it doesn't even say no evidence of nerve root compression but you'd have to look at the picture to make that distinction so i would make a very good distinction based on that now let's say we gave the patient an epidural and the um pain improved what do you think happens to the disc herniation it's still there so we just created a scenario where you have a pathology on mri but you have an asymptomatic patient which means maybe it was an inflammatory component well, you know, radiculitis, which is what an inflammation of a nerve root is, never shows up on an MRI because an MRI can't identify that. Have any of you ever seen an MRI interpretation in your clinical career that said inflammation of a nerve root? I haven't, and I've seen tens of thousands. Scary, right? But yet, how often do we do an epidural on these patients that have a disc herniation and they get better? Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? So we're, treating, we're using the MRI to identify pathology, but then the pathology we just treated really doesn't correlate theoretically with what we just did, but yet we get an outcome. Interesting way to think about that. So what happens when you see a patient like this? I like to call this one the do not pass go, do not collect $200 patient, and here's why. Could we do conservative therapy on this patient because there's no nerve recompression? Yeah, you might wanna try physical therapy, you might wanna try manipulation, You might wanna try an oral steroid, an oral NSAID. I'm okay with this because it doesn't look like the patient is really in any sort of distress, right? But what happens when you get to this patient? Now we have a frank evidence of nerve root compression as it exits the IVF. Can everybody see that? It's like this is the perfect image to explain what's going on over here graphically. So this patient has nerve root compression. If you have actual nerve root compression, aside from the fact you're gonna have a clinical exam that has a patient that lights up like your Christmas tree, is this patient gonna do well or be a candidate for physical therapy? No. Are you gonna wanna manipulate that patient? No. Even if you did an epidural, you can get an anesthetic effect from the epidural, but you think the steroid effect's gonna have much of an effect, if you will? No. So this is a patient that requires a decompression because there really is nerve root compression. Well, here's the kicker. The interpretation for this MRI and the interpretation for the last MRI that I just showed you was verbatim almost identical except for the nerve root level. Well, that's scary, isn't it? That's why we have to look at the pictures and I know it's impractical to look at every single MRI that you have because there's not enough time of the day. But if you have a patient who's not responding, it's a good place to start, you know? So this patient was a microdiscectomy that ended up doing very well because we hit it really fast, didn't allow time for scarring of the epinorium to set in because if the patient had nerve compression for a prolonged period of time and the epinorium got scarred, even though you decompress it by removing the disc herniation, that nerve still has scar tissue over it and still acts like it's compressed even though you can pass a freight train through the IVF. So it's nice to catch them early because you get a better outcome. What about a case like this? What do you see here? This is like a definite disc extrusion, extrusion, isn't it? This was an interesting patient because I would have thought this patient had a lot of really bad, radicular findings, but it turns out they had none. But what they had was a lot of axial pain and they were just stuck, they couldn't move. If I put a marble in your shoe, is it gonna affect your ability to walk? Yeah, so these patients, if you go back, well, the disc herniation compresses the cord more. If you go forward, it pulls the cord against the herniation. These patients are just frozen in place. They don't wanna move at all. And then when you have a surgeon who comes back and says, well, you know, we don't operate on axial pain. Well, what else are you gonna do, right? So the correlation of the exam with the correlation of the imaging studies tells you a lot. So here's where we put this into practice. So here we have patient on the left. It's a 27-year-old female who works in a warehouse and supposedly injured her back when trying to like lift up a box and ended up with an acute radiating back pain or back pain radiating to the lower extremity all the way to the foot that's now gone on for like you know, several months, okay? So they do the MRI and the MRI shows pretty what? Normal. So when you have a normal MRI in a worker's comp scenario, what do you think the insurance company says about the patient? They are malingering what do you think the doctor says when the patient is asking for their pain medication yeah. medication seeking right so this patient gets sent to me as an ime i'm expecting you know malingering patient drug seeking and no she presents like an acute radiculopathy well that's intriguing isn't it so if you have an acute radicular presentation and you're examining this patient they look like a full-blown radiculopathy but the mri says normal what does that tell you Ridiculitis. Because remember, imaging studies do not identify ridiculitis. So if you can identify what level you think the ridicular pathology might be based on your examination findings. Okay, my exam suggested L5 involvement, and yes, we cheated because I did a, sematis- a segmental somatosensory evoked potential on the, stu- on the patient to identify an L5 radiculitis and also say how severe it was. And I also got some other information because I can tell whether it's coming from the front of the, or the back of the nerve root as well. So is it more of a facet-type pathology versus, let's say, a disc tear or something that can cause that nerve root to be inflamed? So we get a lot of information from that, too. But what we basically did was an L5 transforaminal epidural to address the L5 radiculitis, and guess what we did? Help the patient. So your examination is key, but the presence of a normal immune study tells you a lot about the pathology might be. Somebody asked me earlier what I thought the the most significant pathology I can ever expect to find on on an MRI would be, and I would hope for a normal study on a symptomatic patient because right away that tells me that the patient's more likely to respond to whatever we do to treat and they're more likely to have a favorable outcome to the treatment because there's definitely not going to be an underlying pathology that's going to make things worse that's going to require something more complicated so i'd love a normal mri let's contrast that to this guy on the left on the right so what do you see here this is a 65 year old farmer who the medical profession for whatever reason something happened as a kid so he'd never go to a hospital a doctor or anything he falls off his tractor and ends up with an acute back pain radiating to lower extremity the same exact clinical presentation as our 27 year old warehouse worker which is why i put the studies up there so what do you see when you see this mri what's going on here at l5s1 spondylosis no disc and if you look closely no disc you can also see a little bit of disc material coming out the back there too but the total amount of material coming out the back does not make up for what's missing at the disc space okay i just told you this guy had an acute presentation of low back pain radiating down the back of the leg which was a couple of hours before this mri was taken he was asymptomatic before so what happened is the er doc looks at that and says "Ooh, i think we got a problem here at l5s1 So he happens to tell one of the orthopedic surgeons that was in the ER dealing with a motorcycle, multiple trauma accident, actually, and says, I got another case for you. And this guy was a gem. I really miss working with the surgeon, actually. So the surgeon walks up to the patient and says, look, we're going to need to do a decompression because he assumed the ER doc did a good exam. So the patient got scared left the hospital signing out ama and the surgeon called us up to see if we would see the patient to give him something for his pain because he figured it was going to take a week or two excuse me or longer to convince this patient what he's going to need to help him so the patient comes in we walk to the exam room and i walk out two minutes later tap my partner on the shoulder and said i think the patient's going back to the er because we have a hip fracture so he was having surgery on thursday but he was having a hip fracture repaired not a back so what you have is an asymptomatic, a normal MRI with an asymptomatic patient. And then you have a clear identifiable single pathology on an MRI that has no clinical relevance whatsoever on a symptomatic patient. See what the problem is? So what it, really what it boils down to is we have to examine our patients. That is what's most important. If there's one thing you take away from this session, it's read the patient, not the imaging study. And I say that with all due sincerity. Because MRIs themselves can tell you that there's a presence of a pathology or an abnormality, but they don't tell you if that pathology is clinically significant or clinically relevant. And we treat patients with radiculitis all day long, don't we? Because we see these patients that get better with oral steroids, with NSAIDs, with physical therapy, with injectable steroids. But the pathologies are still there. So think about radiculitis. How about this patient so this patient let's talk about facet inflammation you've all heard of facet inflammation right how many interventional procedures are there for facet pathologies you got intra-articular injections you got medial branch blocks right a couple of variations to the theme so those of you who review mri result interpretations how many times do you see facet inflammation on an mri interpretation a few times so granted if i've looked at 20,000 mris then maybe i've probably seen this a few dozen times max well that's kind of intriguing but what i wanted to show you was a really good case of a facet inflammation so here's one you can see the difference in the facet joint on the right versus the left over here right and i forgot to mention one thing when you're looking at the mri left and right sides are inverted so what's on the right is actually on the left on the imaging study because you can see the little r here So this would be a left facet inflammation. See the facet capsule there that's all inflamed? See the difference? Because this is a T2-weighted image and all that extra bright white line in the facet joint. So here's a kicker. This interpretation actually said inflammation of the facet joint, right on the interpretation. I loved it. I thought the radiologist was pretty slick for catching that. This patient had a lumbar medial branch block done at L3, L4, L4, L5, 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 S1 and you know my favorite joke about that is you sedate the patient so that you make it more comfortable for them but then that gives you a false positive for an outcome for a medial branch block so you can do a facet ablation just saying so they had a facet ablation too which of course did not help their low back pain so who wants to take a guess about what level this facet inflammation is at remember the the whose line is it anyway we give points for the right answer i'll give a million points for this one but you know points don't matter except it's kind of fun t11 t12 you can tell that because of the shape or the plane of the facet joints because they're actually going coronal versus sagittal which are lumbar facets but what do you see here a rib a kidney rib kidney so if you know the anatomy it's easy to pick out what the imaging study is so this patient had a t11 t12 facet inflammation well guess what my examination showed the same thing so what do you do for that well how about an intra-articular facet block we also did a manipulation, but that's another story because we did the both together because we like combining treatments sometimes because the, combining the two treatments together gives you a better outcome than either one might on its own. So that was our game for this month. But here's the funny part. The insurance company says we already paid for two series of facet injections and an ablation. We're not paying for another one. It's like, well, I don't know why you did those. The problem's right here. Look, all the hours are pointing to the same place. So it's like, okay, we'll pay for one more, but only one well it only took one because we diagnosed the patient properly and then we got an outcome so all was you know happy so i put this up because this guy is one of you so this is a physician he's actually a pediatric neonatologist Um, i like the guy (laughs) so he was having back pain for two years increasing in severity but he had two different manifestations he had back pain that was just constant chronic and sort of centralized maybe radiating a little bit that was just getting worse over time but he also had another problem whereby if he moved a certain way he'd get a catching pain and everything would lock up well it could be one pathology but it could also be multiple pathologies so i look at his mri and the first thing you see when you look over here is you see that nice big white line right what do we see when we see a white line in the facet joint what's that on a t2-weighted image, the inflammation of a facet, right? We all know that. We just learned it. Well, if you look really closely at this facet joint, It might be hard to see it in the back of the room, And I apologize for that. I like being able to blow up the images, But I can't do it when we're in a room this, like this. So you have a little nodule here on the top of the facet joint. What's that? It's called the synovial cyst. Remember the idea of a marble poking into your shoe? Um, you think that's taking up space in the, in the canal? yeah it's also really affecting the nerve root where it exits the ivf because look there's nerve root encroachment here so we got canal and foraminal stenosis occurring because of the presence of a synovial cyst and an inflamed facet joint can everybody see that right i can it sticks out like a sore thumb and you can see it in both images see that nice big facet and if you look here you can actually see the nerve root compression on the lateral study how much foraminal uh, stenosis there is or encroachment because he's kind of got the trifecta of having a short pedicle, an enlarged facet joint, and the synovial cyst, so there's not a lot of room for that nerve root to come out, okay? That was at what level? Well, I cheated, it says on the screen, so you can say L5S1, right? But here's going up a little bit further on the same study, and when you look at his laterals higher up, you can see a very good margin for vertebra and disc, but what happens when you get here at L3, L4? Notice how the lines are blurred. Can you guys see that? Well, what's that? Well, it's cheating. It's on the screen. That's bone marrow edema. Bone marrow edema basically is leaking out into the disc space and blurring that M plate That usually happens in the case of severe arthritic processes or M plate fractures. Huh? So, do you think that would be an inflammatory process? Yeah. And if you have an inflammatory process going on anywhere near the spinal cord, like discitis or near a nerve root, could that cause the nerve root or the nerve roots inside the canal to become inflamed? You bet your sweet backside, right? Okay, so we can see two distinct pathologies on this MRI that are very significant. And if you think about it, that would account for the patient's catching pain because if you twist the wrong way and you clip that L5 nerve root, he's going down. And for the other back pain that seems to be just sort of dull diffuse and increasing in severity mm, that would explain that component right no one says you have to have one pathology it's sort of like Lay's potato chips you know you can't have just one here's the MRI report and I can't blow it up unfortunately because I don't have that little little ability of doing so but let's look at L5S1 because that was the first, first pathology we looked at so, L5S1 says there's bilateral facet degenerative changes, right greater than the left, with a small disc bulge asymmetrical to the right. The results are narrowing of the uh, subarticular zone with mild to moderate right framinal narrowing. Where's the synovial cyst? <laughs> Where's the inflamed facet joint? They're missing from the interpretation. Do you see that? but aren't those real severe pathologies, significant pathologies, unusual pathologies? Let's look at L3, L4. L3, L4 has bone marrow edema. That is also a pretty significant pathology. And yet you look at L3, L4, it says, you have disc height loss with diffuse disc bulge, bilateral facet degenerative changes with epidural fat, which was another story canal stenosis moderate conjunction with the epidural lipomatosis which was the fatty changes and mild to moderate mild to moderate foraminal narrowing where's the mention of the um the bone marrow edema does the interpretation correlate with the imaging study not too well so of course you know i had a question the radiologist who who threw a conniption and um, but i got an apology from him and the supervisor of the department and the A uh, update on that interpretation and then we did a transfer We did an intralaminar epidural to you know help him Symptomatically with respect to the l3 l4 bone marrow edema But then i expected to get a clinical response which would Say okay confirmatory diagnosis but don't worry it's not going To stay there someone's got to go back and figure out why you Have bone marrow edema otherwise this is going to keep on Coming back and as for that cyst you're an accident waiting to happen you're going to twist one day and we're going to be picking you up off the floor it's eventually going to have to be surgically removed because it's causing compression right big difference but none of the treatment he's got over two years was ever directed to those pathologies because that's not what the MRI interpretation said and no one looked at the imaging studies they only looked at the interpretation that's pretty scary so here's one what do you see here this is a pre-surgical MRI What's the only pathology you can see on this pre-surgical mri? Small tiny disc bulge with disc desiccation, right? At what level? L405? See, it's a little bit darker disc, and you've got a little tiny, We'll call it a protrusion, how's that? We won't even call it a bulge. And you can see on the axial slice that correlates to that level, You, t- you see a slight small protrusion in the back, But is that protrusion pushing on anything? No. Is there anybody in this room that would call this a surgical decompression case? Let me show you the post-surgical decompression imaging study. (laughs) So here's our post-surgical decompression imaging study. And I kid you not. So how do you know that this is the post-surgical study versus the pre-surgical study? I knew you were going to ask that question. (laughs) Because if you look right here, whoops, sorry. If you look right here, There's a little tiny white spot in the back of the pedicle because that's where they drilled the hole to do the microdiscectomy. Okay, that proves the patient had surgery, but what would you say when you look at this disc pathology on the pre-surgical versus the post-surgical? Looks identical? What did they do? Drill a hole, stick some instruments in there, and say, okay, you're decompressed? Yeah, this patient had sacralitis, by the way, on clinical exam after the surgery, which we injected the SI joint, the patient did really well i don't make these cases up by the way these are all real cases that crossed my attention so yesterday in the up, in the class with the uh, neck and upper extremity sessions for those of you who took that we talked about this scenario and this is extremely important because we all remember the distribution of the brachial plexus right c5 through t1 nerve roots so c5 dermatome lateral arm forearm c6 first two digits c7 middle digit c8 last two digits t1 kind of medial arm forearm everybody agree with that all the muscles for grip come from the medial aspect of the, of the ulnar nerve as it kind of goes around the, the medial aspect of the forearm and innervates. Muscles for grip, right? From the ulnar nerve, so that's C8 T1. So can we all say with some degree of confidence that if you have numbness and tingling that follows the ulnar nerve distribution, including the fourth and fifth digits, and has decreased grip, grip strength on the presentation of your patient, would you confidently say there's at least a 50% chance that the patient has a C8 or T1 radiculopathy, potentially? it may be a problem involving the medial cord of the brachial plexus but same distribution yes here's the problem at least 50 percent of the MRIs that are done stop at the body of C7 well that's a problem because where does the C8 nerve root come out C7 T1 where's the T1 nerve root come out T1 T2 so even if the MRI could identify a pathology more often than not they're looking over here and the pathology is over here is that like a little oversight potentially so you guys anytime you ever order an mri to to evaluate your patient with neck and upward extremity pain it's a good thing to write right on the imaging study please include axial images of the, to include the c8 and t1 nerve roots through t2 you'll never not do that again because remember there may or may not be a pathology but at least let's look for it because knowing whether it's there makes all the difference in the world. And so the, you guys are bringing this information back to your radiology departments, and you have people scratching their heads saying, Whoops, how did we overlook that? So the numbers are getting better, so we're seeing fewer and fewer MRIs missing that area, but it's almost embarrassing right and then i made the joke about which was true that one time I'm, i suspected a patient with a c8 radiculopathy and i'm sitting there arguing with the guy in the radiology department he says well if you want t1 and t2 slices then that's a thoracic study so they said look i don't care what you do just do it so they did a cervical study stopping at the body of c7 a thoracic study that started at the body of t1 and what we didn't get was the c8 nerve root and the patient had a c8 radiculopathy. luckily i thought it was inflammatory anyway by that point so i really didn't care so my favorite imaging study research was this one study so i always quote it basically in the mid-90s jensen took let's say 100 but it was 98 patients and did mris well the problem was these patients were asymptomatic no symptoms at all so the results were 52 percent of those patients had disc bulges and herniations at at least one level and 39 38 percent had bulges and herniations at more than one level Well, that's the asymptomatic population with disc herniations. The corollary to that study was done in 2013, published in 2016 out of China, which was really cool. They had an N of 3,107 patients who presented to two different ERs during the month of January in 2013 complaining of acute onset of back pain. So they did MRIs on these patients. Well, when they did that, 58.3% had textbook normal MRIs, and 41.3 had some pathology on the mri but they found poor correlation with the pathology and the level of the complaints based on the clinical exam Hmm. so you have a 50 50 shot of having a disc bulge or herniation whether or not you have symptoms i did a study that we showed in the the neck and upper extremity session too yesterday i don't know if i put it in here or not Um, i didn't but i'll tell you about it basically they did an shoulder mris on everybody bilateral shoulder mris on the complete everybody two-year-olds two-year-olds to 80-year-olds in a village someplace we can never do that in the united states and what they found was as you got over 60 two-thirds of the population had uh, rotator cuff tears well wait a second that's pretty significant (laughs) and most of them at least more than the bulk of those were asymptomatic so the same thing happens even with shoulder mris you know you have a greater likelihood of having them on your, your present whether you have symptoms or not especially as you get older and the cervical mri showed 10 percent almost of the cervical mri patients that they did in another study with 500 had such severe spinal stenosis that they thought those patients would be warranting surgical decompression on the double blind side but no one bothered to tell the guys who interpreted those study where they said the patient had severe spinal you know, myelopathy basically that all those patients were asymptomatic do we need to do a myelopathy decompression on an asymptomatic patient yeah probably not so anyway so this guy said you know what B- bornstein said i'm going to bet that if you had a disc herniation that was asymptomatic 10 years ago i'm going to bet that going forward you're going to have back pain a greater likelihood of having back pain And what they found out was if you had a disc herniation 10 years ago that was asymptomatic, you were less likely to have back pain going forward. So by conclusion, having a disc herniation that is asymptomatic is a protection against having back pain. Well, you can't really make that conclusion in real life, but it sounds kind of cool, right? So the bottom line is no one ever made this clinical correlation to say that these pathologies we're looking at on imaging studies are of value. And my slide is not advancing anymore. There we go. So on the left, we have that same 27-year-old female that we talked about earlier. On the right, I have what has arguably been the most worst MRI that I've seen on a single patient in my practice because this one MRI showed every single pathology we ever come across. He had canal stenosis, foraminal stenosis, facet hypertrophy, anterior herniations, posterior herniations, scoliosis, spondylosis. You name it, it was there. So here's the story surgeon calls me up and says dave and this is a surgeon we've had a lot of you know a lot of patients in common and we did pretty well with he says, "If i got a good complex case for you i'm not so sure where to start i'm hoping you'll give me some insight because he knows we have these little magical ways of figuring out what level might be symptomatic so the patient comes in and the patient tells me about their pain they're pointing right about here and they say well this is where it hurts It's especially problematic if I sit for a prolonged period of time when I get up, if I take a step, and it's just constantly nagging me, but sometimes better, sometimes worse. Any radiation down your legs? No. Any, you know, when you see foraminal, you know, when you look at cases like that, you're looking at stenotic-type lesions, so you're thinking you're gonna get patients with um, claudication-type symptoms and antalgic posturing and everything. We're getting nothing. I do my clinical examination on the guy and I can't find a single clinical examination finding that looks abnormal except for a gluteus medius trigger point. So I said, okay, this is impossible. I did what arguably was like the most comprehensive evoked potential study I've ever done on a patient. I looked at every nerve root from T11 to S1 bilaterally. And guess what? They were normal. So I said to the patient, well, the only thing I can find is gluteus medius trigger point which actually corresponds to what you're complaining about, so if you have that, What do you think we should do? Go to trigger point. So I told the guy, let's, you know, let's do that and see how he feels. So he gets up off the table and he says, Wow, it's sore, but the pain's gone. And I said, don't worry, it'll come back. <laughs> because I expected the injection to wear off at some point. So I said, let's see how you do for the next couple of weeks, And we'll see you back. And he came back a couple of weeks later, And he said, well, you know, a couple days ago, It started coming back, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was, and it's doing pretty good, but it was still there, so we injected it again, still not knowing what's causing it. So the guy calls up two weeks later and says, you know what, I'm doing so good, it takes me an hour and a half to get to your office, can I like, reschedule the follow-up and just basically call you if I need to? It's like, sure. So the 65-year-old guy is back building houses for Habitat for Humanity, has the worst MRI I've ever seen in my clinical career, and yet there is not a single symptomatic pathology on that MRI to treat the patient for so the only thing which is a true story too that came out of that is that surgeon never sent me another patient (laughs) true story so inflammation of a nerve root can be extremely painful and mimic full-blown radiculopathy more likely to respond to our care doesn't show up on an mri and of course the worst mri findings doesn't mean that they're necessarily symptomatic Here's one of the problems we have. Now, those of you who know me know that my practice became 90% workers' comp over the last 15 years before I decided to walk away. Now you know why I wanted to walk away from clinical practice, too. Well, when you tell a workers' comp patient that they see you do an MRI and you're told, hey, you have three disc herniations, they now feel that the employer or the job caused these disc herniations. You can make these patients completely asymptomatic because you treated them, and they still feel like they've been harmed. Uh, dr shopmeyer does a session on saturday if you guys are still here you should attend because she talks about how words make a difference when you tell your patients side note i have a i also tell the story about a friend of mine i I met a couple through one of my the car clubs i'm a member of and i got tired of listening to this patient say she had fibromyalgia all the time so i said one day do me a favor come to the office let's take a look at this so i found something that was relatively easy rib arthropathy treated it and she gets off the table she's feeling a lot better i said let's see how you do well i made her fibromyalgia symptoms that were there for a couple of years disappear i've known her them now now they moved out of richmond i guess in like mid 2000s and i met him before and we still see him all the time so i've known him for like 15 years at least it's been 10 years now since i treated her she's never been symptomatic again but yet if you ask her she'll still tell you she has fibromyalgia patients cannot get that out of their head once you tell them something So when they did a study and they said look you know when these workers were told they have disc herniations guess what they had less likelihood of getting better less likelihood of ever going back to work less likely that anything was ever going to help them because no matter what you do they can't get that disc herniation out of the head just like my friend the other day who came to me and said would you review my MRI findings like what do you got he said well I have disc herniations yeah I got that but tell me about your pain well I have a herniated disc no Read the patient not the imaging study because the patients Remember the imaging studies and half the time it can be a red Herring just think about the girl who had the the minimally Invasive like the discectomy that really didn't do anything Other than drill a hole in the spine so i I was interesting Listening to the lecture earlier i forgot the speaker's name um, From michigan Uh, and he was talking about how they're using functional mri to evaluate patients we all looked at functional mri and said ooh that would be something that would be fun to see what we can do with our patients but it's been almost 10 years since we started seeing these a good solid five years since they started taking pictures of patients in pain is that a tool that's clinically available to us yet yeah not really so we're hoping that maybe things will change as we go but it's still pie in the sky as is diffuser tensor imaging studies with functional mri which really give you these cool projections of looking at individual nerves firing so we might be able to take a picture of our patients in pain someday and understand what's going on at a higher level but i guarantee when we do i'm going to have to update my pain mechanisms lecture because we're going to find some new things that we haven't talked about yet so what about ct scans ct scans are kind of cool because they are used for a variety of different things that we have nowadays and they're really nice because you can look at contrast differences of like one percent and see a pathology on ct so ct is cool because it but it looks at sort of a little bit of a different slant right because now we're looking more at hard tissue let's say than soft tissue that contains water so what you end up with with was with a ct scan which is sort of like an x-ray on steroids because you're spiraling around the patient as you come down and then taking these slices you end up with a very similar presentation slice wise on that orange you know left to right top to bottom but now you get to go front to back as well so i tend to be mechanically inclined i like taking things apart and yes if i take it apart i'm going to get it back together because i have friends that can take stuff apart it'll never see the light of day of getting reassembled but i don't have like an artistic mind i have a very mechanical mind so you show me a cell phone i'm picturing in the back of my head what the components in the cell phone are but if you show me modern pop art don't ask me to describe it because it just doesn't work for me so when i look at images okay i'm used to looking at this stuff so it's a lot easier for me to do so but what i like are 3d rendering on ct scans and the reason why is using a software algorithm and now they're applying this to mris too you can actually create what is essentially a three-dimensional model of the spine that you can rotate around and access which gives you a lot more information about the patient so if i told you that the mri interpretation of this patient said Spondylosis at L5-S1 with multiple levels of degenerative disc disease from L1 through S1, you're thinking, oh, this patient is screwed, right? Look at all those bad findings. But then you look at the 3 CT, and what do you see? Okay, there's a little bit of spondylosis, and I can see the early in changes, but there's a lot of room going on there, isn't there? Would you think this would be a symptomatic pathology at this point? Probably not but yet you think the worst when you see the written interpretation so i like looking at the picture because it tells you a lot more information i mean you can drive a freight train through these ivfs and this is a patient that's blessed with large pedicles and decent sized disc space and actually a small spinal cord and nerve roots so these are the patients that can have full-blown disc herniations anyway and still be asymptomatic even if it would be a problem on a patient with a a small diameter canal and a large cord And that also makes a difference when you look at your patient because those are variations to the theme. How about something like this? And this I put up here because this is the 2D uh, CT and this is the three-dimensional version. And you see what the difference is when you're looking at that image? Can you see the difference in pathology now? Doesn't it make it jump out? So if you ever have the opportunity to order a CT scan, just write, please include 3D rendering on it, because they'll give you back these images. Because you can look at this and say, I mean, granted, you have multiple levels of pathology, but where do you see it the worst on the MRI? Hmm, 5, 4, 3, 2? Can everyone see that? So this patient clearly has an L2 radiculopathy going on. There's multivitous muscle spasms actually causing guarding, which is why it looks like it's slanted down there. How about this guy? We'll end with this, because we're going to run out of time, and they're not going to let me run over on this lecture. So what do you see here that's a problem so first of all this 3d ct looks really bad doesn't it well let me give you the case history here so this patient had an anterior lumbar interbody fusion of two levels um, l3 l4 l4 l5 okay So we used to call these, or the initial studies when we first saw these, were called ray cages. So you go in through the abdomen, anterior approach, you kind of drill out these little tunnels in the disk space making arches into the vertebral end plates and you stick in these titanium cages and you fill it with stuff that promote effusion, right? How many cages are supposed to be at each level? Two, how how many cages do you see at that one? One, what happened to the other cage? It rolled out of the confines of the spine so the surgeon said you know your fusion does not look stable we really should probably go in from the back never bothered to mention the record that there's a cage missing so he brings them to the er uh, er or to stabilize and do a posterior fusion so he figured he was going to do a posterior fusion for l3 l4 right one slight problem where do you see the rods l4 l5 below that So what the guy did is he brought the patient back to the ER or to stabilize this, ended up fusing the level below. So then he's looking at his post-op imaging and says, you know, it's still not looking right. I was trying to avoid doing the other level. We're probably going to have to do that one too. So the patient goes back for surgery number three with no mention of any of the mistakes and ends up with this. So now you got the posterior fusion in the back and look at all this excess hyperostosis or bone growth on this CT scan what does that look like here's the patient scenario this patient has severe constant back pain can't move now they're getting severe radiating complaints into their lower extremities following the static distribution of course with motor loss going on as well their pain is so severe you give them an opioid among anything it might barely touch it but doesn't really do much so they're not really compliant with respect to that medication agreement are they they're taking more so then because they violate their medication agreement what happens to the patient care they're discontinued so they're forced to go to somebody else so i saw him right about the time doc number three was seeing him and it already just cut him off so i'm looking at him thinking okay i've been doing this for years and even i don't know what to do here because now you've got bony encroachment of the nerve roots especially not too bad at l3 but l4 l4 and l5 are being compressed bony compression inside the fusion what the heck do you do for that i mean i called up every colleague that i know around the country trying to get advice and they're telling me i have no idea we've never seen anything like that so meanwhile a couple of days later i'm still trying to figure out what to do my wife and i typically will watch the news sometimes while we're having dinner and there's my patient on television he's being arrested as the armed oxycotton bandit he's robbing pharmacies at gunpoint, though the gun was not loaded because he's trying to get some medication for himself just to take the edge off his pain because he can't stand it so look what happens when the model fails that this kind of stuff really bothers me till this day i don't know do not know what happened to this patient i tried to find out but nobody would tell me so basically um, do we have time i guess we got time for bone scans right so everyone know what a bone scan is you basically give a patient a radioactive tag Right? and then the patient absorbs this and then it gets metabolized as it gets distributed around the body it's supposed to be distributed in all places places that it needs to be metabolized greater like in the case of an inflammatory process or fracture of certain cancers show up as a hot spot places that where it's supposed to be and it's not shows up as like a cold spot that's an infarct right and that's how a bone scan works so when you see a bone scan like this this is a patient that had one of those failed lumbar intervertebral artificial discs well if you have a disc that has spondylosis meaning decreased disc height and now they have decreased movement as a result of that spondylosis what happens when you jack it up all of a sudden and put more movement than the patient had before you created a facet arthropathy right so that the, the facet joint getting inflamed and if the facet joint gets inflamed what happens to the nerve root hmm that can become inflamed too so now we got a radiculopathy type symptoms so they're wondering why the patient had this and it was worse off than they were before when you look at the bone scan and the you know when you look at the bone scan in the back what's lighting up like her Christmas tree the facet joint so this patient ended up getting facet injections we tried a it too but we it, ultimately we couldn't do anything for that because it was just too much movement it needed to be stabilized so I thought they were going to just take that out and fuse it but the patient died because he passed away from complications that arguably might have happened because of all the medications he was on which is a whole nother story Um, lastly we'll close with ultrasound the reason why i like ultrasound is ultrasound is something you can put in your own hands that you can use to treat see and treat your patients at the moment so the examples we gave here were an ac joint injection or a plantar fasciitis but you can do it for all sorts of peripheral injections now I'm not supposed to tell you this, but there's, there's a, a, a portable ultrasound device you can buy on eBay. It's not FDA approved here, but it's only like $600, but they're trying to get FDA approval. It comes out of China. The imaging device is this big. It connects to your iPad or iPhone by Bluetooth, bless you, and you get beautiful images. Um, hopefully, there have been some more that have been um, approved. There's one you see advertised on television all the time. It was made by, I think, GE, and the commercials are showing people all over the world saying, let's take a look in different languages. It looks like a StarTac phone. So that's cool technology. So I think there's a lot coming down the pike that's going to help you bring bedside care to the patient. And we'll see what happens as it goes. So with that, I'm not allowed to go any longer. Um, We'll have to cut this one short. I hope I gave you some information with respect to imaging studies to make it help. Please remember, read the patient, not the imaging study. But there is a lot of information to be gleaned, even from a normal study, or with respect to the pathologies that you see relevant to timelines and kind of pathology that it might be. So thank you. Enjoy Pain Week, and hopefully I'll see you guys again on Friday for Back Pain.